You can take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Some of you are already there. I appreciated Pastor Pestel's message last week. Uh, I don't always get time to listen to the messages from the ones before, but I, know, I knew he'd be an encouragement, and so I took time this week to listen to it. Good themes, the idea of fellowship, uh, the idea of trusting God in hard times. It was relevant. It was pertinent to where we're at. And a couple thoughts jumped out at me. The one, uh, looking to Christ instead of your problems. Uh, the idea of fear of circumstances being replaced by a fear of God. What a great thought. Uh, when they were in the boat and they were afraid of their circumstances and then they saw God for who he was. What manner of man is this? Uh, fear of God replacing fear of circumstances. And then the second one that caught my attention was this. It's not the size of your faith, but the, can you fill in the blank? The what? The exercise of your faith. And that hit me different because I often have used that idea or taken the thought, and maybe you have too, it's not the size of my faith, it's the object of my faith, right? And it's what I'm looking towards, what my faith is in, and that's true as well. But he was coming at it from a different angle. It's not that I have to wait till I have enough faith. I need to exercise the faith that I have. And that was, a, that was an encouragement to me. Just do it. Just trust him. Just step into whatever it is that God's wanting you to do and trust him for that. And so I sent him a text and told him I appreciated it. I heard several comments from you as well. Um, but I'd like to go back to Ephesians today for one more message. Uh, we've spent two weeks already in Ephesians 3, that last seven verses, this prayer that Paul has given that is just an incredible prayer. Um, and to get our minds kind of focused back in that direction, it was, there was four petitions in that prayer. First of all, a prayer for strength, uh, for strength in the inner man. He says that he... He would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And there's a lot there that we've talked about. But strength, strength on the inside. Second was a petition for residence, that we would put out the welcome mat, that Christ would dwell in your hearts, that we'd invite him in and just say, Lord, you can have whatever you want. Make yourself at home in my life. You have complete and total access. Third was a request for comprehension. In verse 18, we'd be able to comprehend that we could get a grip and somehow grasp this amazing love that God has for us. And there's no way we can possibly do it because he says it's unknowable. <laughs> we can't get a hold of it. But his prayer is that we might be able to get a grip and try to comprehend it. This love that's like a vast, shoreless, bottomless ocean. I trust that when you're going through difficulties, you pause and take time to meditate on the love of God. Sometimes it's the character quality of God that we doubt first when hardship comes. It should be the one we lean on most when hardship comes. Because his love is present, it's there, and it will never run out. It's infinite, and we can depend upon that. But there was a fourth request here, and that was for fullness, that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God, uh, filled to overflowing with his fullness, emptied of self and filled with Christ, becoming more and more like him in our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions. And then when he gets to the end of these, these incredible truths that he's been uh, writing down, uh, he reminds us that our God is fully able to make these requests a reality. In verse 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church. In the church, there's the common denominator in the book of Ephesians. He's talking about the church. By Jesus Christ, throughout all ages, world without end. Quite a doxology. Quite a statement. And on the heels of that, Paul is now starting to get practical. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is a lot of theology. It's telling us the why, and now he's getting practical, and he's telling us the how. He's moving us from doctrine to practice. 
These truths that we look at here don't do us any good if we don't live them out. If they're not expressed in our daily lives. He takes the theology we just looked at and shows us why it matters. He spent three chapters discussing the wonders of salvation and the mystery of the church. And now he said this needs to be fleshed out every day in the way that you live. And the way you interact within the church specifically. It's like there are expectations we now need to fulfill as believers and as members of the church. There's some requirements based on what God has done for us. And that's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk worthy of this great salvation that you've been granted. Well, how do we do that? He takes the next three chapters to tell us about that. And we're not going to do all that here this morning. I want to just focus on the first one. And then we're going to go to some, um, some messages that deal more with the holidays and things like that, I think, for the rest of the year. But he, he, he talks to us about this worthy walk. And he says the very first way that we demonstrate that we're walking worthy is by having unity within the church. Look down to verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Perhaps we could say, since it's the first thing that he mentions, that unity is the hallmark of a worthy walk. It's the chief and the most important one. It's interesting, he talks a lot earlier in the book about being reconciled to God. He's reconciled us, Jew, Gentile alike, reconciled us to himself. And now he's saying it's very important that you be reconciled to each other. Both are important. How well does our society today demonstrate unity? (laughs) That was kind of a rhetorical question. I'm seeing a couple smiles. We just came off of an election week, right? Um, How many are like, I wish I was still getting the phone calls. I'm so lonely. I just wish I could have those phone calls coming a little more often. Nobody's in that position. Boy, we're living in a world that is fractured, isn't it? I don't know know that, that it's possible for a world to be more divided than it is right now. It's crazy how things are, are, are coming across, and I think it's intentional in some ways. And we're going to talk a little more about that tonight, kind of a current event type of a thing. God showed me a passage that just fits really well as far as how do we respond uh, to these types of things. Uh, I think it'll be an encouragement to you. Uh, but that'll be tonight. I don't want to delve into that too more right now, but our country is fractured. Our families are fractured. There's division everywhere that we look. And yet unity is still possible. In Paul's day, this new church was made up of Jewish and Gentile converts. Are there differences between Jewish people and Gentile people (laughs) in the way they look at life, in the way they worship, in the way they raise their families? Yes, huge differences. And Paul is saying that you guys are going to come together in this church and you can be unified despite all the differences that you have. And folks, I think the same is possible for us in our church as well. Do we have differences in this body of Christ? Absolutely. We have people from the West, we have people from the South, we have people from the East, but if you're, I mean, if you're on Eastern Montana, that, a little further than that, it's East, right? <clears throat> My wife is looking at me because we have this discussion periodically. Um, she's from Wisconsin, and that's not East. I just want to clarify that. It's not. <clears throat> she told me so, <laughs> so I know it's not East. But we have differences as far as locality. We have differences in personality. We have differences in the occupations that everybody has had through the course of their lives. We've got builders. We've got a doctor. We've got lots of different things that have been involved. Do we look at life differently because of those experiences? Absolutely we do. Is there the potential as we come together and rub shoulders within the church to have some friction because of those differences? 
Yes, there is. That's a reality. And so what do we do with that? How do we minimize that, first of all, but then how do we work through that and actually learn to love each other more because of our differences? That's part of what we're going to explore here in this passage today. And by the way, I think it's, I think it's possible that we have an incredible opportunity as a church because of the fact that our world is so divided right now. If we can take people from all the different walks of life that we have here and we can function in unity and love one another, that's a great thing to show the world. And I think it's going to give them a hunger for what we have, to show them there's a possibility of this. It doesn't exist anywhere else, but I can come to the church and I can enjoy that. What a tremendous thought that is. I think we've got an incredible opportunity. But if we don't demonstrate that unity, it's going to be, have a, it's going to be hard for us to demonstrate the gospel because the two are tied closely together. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul has just spoken about the immeasurable love of God before reminding us that we also need to love each other. (laughs) If his love is vast, if it's got height and depth and breadth and width, and now he's calling us to love each other, he says, I've got the love that's available available for you to do that. And we can do that together. Uh, Somebody has said that oil is that which lubricates the gears of unity, and I think there's some truth to that statement. But let's get into this text here. Let's go ahead and read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And then we'll try to to work through it here in the time that we have left. Here's what Paul says. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just two points to the message today. Uh, We see, first of all, a mandate for a charitable walk. Paul says, I want you to walk in love. Uh, Walk in a way that is charitable, and then he tells us how to do that. We see the marks of a charitable walk. Uh, I've had some that are struggling with the blanks, and so I figured I'll just not give you any today. And so if that helps you, hopefully it will. Uh, Eventually, we're going to get to where we have PowerPoint up here. I just haven't had time to get all that together. But if you can have both, uh, that might help you to to not lose track. And it's not sometimes you don't hear a word. Sometimes, you know, you catch a rabbit trail. And I can't fault you guys for catching rabbit trails. I do it all the time. And so I want to be sensitive to that. Um, But today you've got the full, uh, well, a scaled-down version of the outline there for you with no blanks. Let's look, first of all, at the mandates for a charitable walk. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy. First of all, Paul tells us what he is. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Did that phrase jump out at you like it did to me? It's not a real common expression that we see in the Scriptures. In fact, I only found it three other times, and every time it's used by the Apostle Paul. Uh, We've found other phrases that he uses. He talks about being a servant of the Lord, a minister of the Lord, an apostle of the Lord. And it's interesting, everything about Paul is stated in terms of his relationship with Christ. There's a divine dimension that overshadows everything in Paul's life from his perspective. He wasn't Caesar's prisoner, he was Christ's prisoner. And that changes his outlook. No matter the circumstance, Paul could see the overruling providence of God in his life. And it didn't matter if he was preaching in a palace or being let down the wall in a basket. It didn't matter if he was being hindered from entering into Macedonia or if he was imprisoned in Philippi, if he was leading the jailer to Christ or if he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. It didn't matter to him. He saw in his physical situations, he saw his physical situations from a spiritual vantage point. That's an important quality to develop. If we can learn to see things that way, it helps us understand the providence of God. God, you're in control of my life, and I'm going to choose to view my circumstances through you. 
And I think that can be true of us as well. Have you ever felt like you were a prisoner of something? Maybe you actually have been. I I don't need to know that. But um, have you ever felt imprisoned in your life? I think all of us have. We can be prisoners to our circumstances. Sometimes we can be prisoners to our jobs or maybe we're prisoners to our age and to the physical limitations that come from that. Maybe we're prisoners to our family dynamics. Lots of ways that we can feel imprisoned in life. But we can also do what Paul does here and look at it back up a step or two and see, wait a second, I'm also a prisoner of Christ. He's the one that's superintending all these things in my life. He's in control, and I can trust his providence. It doesn't mean our circumstances will change, but our outlook on those circumstances surely will change. Do you think Paul struggled sitting in prison, thinking about all the things that he could be doing? He's a doer. I mean, everything we see, he's running to the next place, preaching here, preaching there, going to the next city, starting a church. And now what can he do? He's sitting, and he's writing letters. And he's probably wondering, is this doing any good? (laughs) Are they even reading these? You know, did the post office get this one delivered on time? I sent it priority mail, right? Do you think he struggled with that? Well, he backed up, and he realized that God had him in prison for a purpose, And if he hadn't been in prison, had he been going out and doing all those things, he wouldn't have written these things down. And we wouldn't have them today. It's impacted far more people because he was in prison. Folks, your circumstances won't change just because you're seeing it from God's perspective, but your outlook on those circumstances will. And that's tremendous. So learn to understand that and begin to see it the way. And I think that's why Paul brings us out. He tells us who he is, what he is. He's a prisoner of the Lord. And secondly, Paul tells us what we are to do. He says we are to walk worthy. This might be challenging, but I'm going to ask you to remember way back almost a month ago, maybe a little over a month ago, in Colossians chapter 1, we looked at one of Paul's other prayers, and this same request was in that prayer. He prayed that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a common theme that Paul uses through his, through his writings. And so here we see it again. And as we try to look to outline the passage, we see, first of all, the passion in his plea. He says, I beseech you, I beseech you. And the word here means to encourage or to exhort or to plead with you. I beg of you, please walk worthy. Live in light of what has been given to you. It's not a cold, impersonal admonishment. It's a warm, personal encouragement. Um, How can I illustrate this? You see a kid running down the ramp. There's a couple of different ways you can confront that situation. You can snap your fingers and point and say, hey, knock it off. (laughs) Slow down. Quit running in the church. Is that cold and impersonal or is that warm and personal? (laughs) It's a little cold and impersonal, but you're getting his attention, and sometimes that has to happen. We did that with our kids. Sometimes get their attention, change what you're doing right now. Or you could catch that person and put your arm around their shoulder and say, man, you're in a hurry today. (laughs) I'm so glad you're at church. I'm so glad you came, but let's walk. By the way, we've got some older people, and you know you can run into them and maybe knock one of them over, or let's just show respect in the house of God. Let me, let me help you get to the class that you're going to. Do you see the difference between the two? And that's the idea here. It's, it's from the word paraclete, the idea of coming alongside to help. The Holy Spirit is called the same thing. And so in this, in this encouragement, uh, Paul is coming alongside of us, and he's putting his arm around us and saying, hey, I want to help you do this. I want to help you walk worthy. Just like Barnabas came alongside me so many years ago, I'm now coming alongside you, and so we can come alongside one another as well and be that encouragement. 
It's interesting that the pronouns change in this passage from singular to plural. Did you catch that? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, singular, that ye, plural, walk worthy. And maybe, maybe there's nothing really there, but I kind of wonder, is it the idea that I need to live individually in such a way so that now we can live corporately a certain way within the church? It's important that I, that I walk worthy individually so that we can walk worthy in a corporate way as well. So we see the passion in his plea. He's beseeching us. He's encouraging us. Secondly, we see the picture that's in his prose. The, the picture he uses is this, to walk worthy. And it comes from a root word meaning weight, meaning weighing the same thing, having the same value. Since they weigh the same, they have the same value. Balancing the scales is the idea. And again, it's the thought. We've looked at this before. My practical life needs to balance with my positional life. My thoughts and my words and my actions seem to fit with who I am in Christ. I need, to, I need to translate these gospel truths into my daily life. That's what he's saying. But he doesn't leave us wondering how to make this work. He tells us how to do it. Look what's next. We see not only the mandate for a charitable walk, we see the marks of a charitable walk. How is it that I can walk worthy? And I see five here in this passage. Let's look at them together. Number one, we first of all, we walk humbly. Look at what it says in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. First of all, we walk humbly. We walk with lowliness. <clears throat> How many of you guys are really excited about that term? <clears throat> lowliness is not one of those characteristics that we would want to put on our male resume. I'm lowly. Wasn't he the worm in the Richard Scarry books? Am I remembering right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of the bottom of the total pole, a lowly. And we don't think about that word in a positive connotation. And by the way, Paul's society didn't view that in a positive way either. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm in the break room at work and I'm demonstrating lowliness, I'm going to get eaten alive, right? It doesn't mean I'm a doormat, okay? It means I'm humble. It wasn't a revered quality in Paul's day. It's not in our day, but it's still an event, essential virtue. Um, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, let's look at a couple passages here quickly. If your fingers start working, that'll help. It's kind of warm in here, and I'm tired. Maybe you guys are a little bit too. Keep us on track here. Matthew chapter 11. You know the passage. You'll recognize it as soon as we read it. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and, what's the word? Lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. Jesus Christ himself was called lowly. It was modeled by the Apostle Paul. Look over in Acts chapter 20 and verse 19. Acts chapter 20 and verse 19. He's actually meeting with the Ephesian elders in this passage, so it's kind of, it ties in. He says, And you know how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I've got the wrong reference here. 19, sorry, I read 20. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Humility of mind, it's that same word, lowly. Paul's not asking more of us than he was willing to do himself. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, where we see this word used one other time. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. We see lowliness here, and we see the fact that it is um, the cure for strife and contention. No strife and contention when we're walking in humility. There's a link between humility and unity, isn't there? 
When I'm walking in humility, unity will follow. Because Proverbs tells us only by pride comes contention. That little word is hard, isn't it? Only by pride comes contention. It doesn't mean we're not going to have disagreements or even, even godly divisions at times. But when there's strife and there's contention, it's going to be become a, because of pride every single time. <clears throat> Humility will cause strife to starve. And so Paul says to have a worthy walk and to have unity within the church, you need to first of all walk with lowliness, with humility. Secondly, he says we need to walk gently so that you'd walk with all lowliness and all meekness. Well, meekness means gentleness or mildness. It's a gentle and forgiving spirit. It's the gentleness of the strong man whose strength is perfectly under control. Kurt and Larissa Rodman are moving to Iowa, and I'm still a little ticked about that, but that's okay. That's the way God's leading them. I'm not going to argue with God. Um, But Kurt is a good friend of mine. He's a big guy. He's a strong man. I have seen Kurt move some things physically that I didn't think were possible for one man to move. He is an incredibly powerful man. But I've never seen him use that strength in a way that was out of control. Now, I'm sure it's happened. He's human just like the rest of us. But when I think of him, I say, wow, he models this characteristic. Incredible strength, but he doesn't have to show it off because it's under control. It's being restrained, and that's kind of the next idea here, the strong restraint of power, the creative channeling of power, making sure that the strength and power that I have is headed in the right direction so that it's valuable and it does something profitable. The meek man is one whose self has been mastered. He has every passion under control. Wow, I start to read these characteristics and these definitions and I see deficiencies in my life. Do you? Everything mastered and under control. And by the way, this is not a self-mastery. It's a mastery that's achieved by the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. I can't do it without his help. I can do it for a time on my own. I can change for a little while. I can be self-disciplined and self-controlled for a time, but eventually without the Spirit's help, I'm not going to be able to do it. It's a spirit-controlled issue here. Discord is the product of energies out of control. Concord or harmony is the product of energies under God's control. And so if I walk gently, if I display meekness, I'm going to be in control of my faculties. And that's an important characteristic as we, as we rub shoulders with each other within the church. We see a third aspect here of this worthy walk, and that is that we walk patiently with long-suffering Literally, the word means to be long-passioned. <laughs> and I don't know exactly what that means, but there's two thoughts that come to my mind in the definition of this word. Number one, it describes tenacity or endurance. There's an aspect of this long-suffering that involves constancy and steadfastness and perseverance. The inability to quit. I'm not going to give up despite the obstacles or the hardships. And sometimes when we're involved in a relationship struggle, it's tempting to quit. So you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this. But this, this quality says, no, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do that until I've got resolution. It persists to the end despite disappointments or misfortune or even discouragement. But there's also another aspect of this word, and I think we could say it describes tenderness. There's a tender aspect to this idea of long-suffering. And here's the thought. It bears insult and injury without bitterness. When things happen to us that aren't right or that aren't fair or that are just wrong, maybe they're accusations that aren't accurate, whatever it might be, it's the ability to take it. 
It's like Christ who, as a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. And that's not easy. Because we all have pride and we all have reputations and we all want to defend ourselves. And here Paul says, walk patiently, walk with long-suffering. It's the quality that refuses to get even. It doesn't cry out for justice. You're not going to hear the, hear the words, that's not fair, coming out of the mouth of a person who's walking with long-suffering or walking patiently. Another aspect is, was one writer worded it this way, it bears unpleasant people with graciousness. Do we ever encounter people like that? Are we ever people like that? <laughs> I think so. I think all of us are. I won't say who was laughing. They were th- they probably saying me, because <clears throat> there's times. And sometimes it's when we're with the people we love the most, unfortunately. It bears unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without irritation. I get irritated so easily, especially when I'm driving because of all these fools in our valley. But then every once in a while I do something really dumb behind the wheel and say, I'm one of the fools in the valley, right? We've got to be careful here. But we need to walk patiently, and that's what this character is, characteristic is. Bears unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without irritation. And lest we think it's out of our reach, it's modeled regularly by our God in relationships to his people. Do you, have you noticed how many times we see this phrase associated with God in the Bible? His long-suffering. Are you thankful he's been long-suffering with you? I'm so thankful he's been long-suffering with me. He's not asking any more of us than he already does for us. And so we see these three marks so far. We walk humbly and gently and patiently. And number four, we walk lovingly. It says in the passage here, we are forbearing one another in love. And again, there's two thoughts here. One is, we could say it this way, a mutual tolerance. And I want to be careful how I say that. I don't want it to be thought of in a cynic, cynical or in a stoic sense, like, well, I'll put up with you, I guess, because I have to. <laughs> that's not the idea. Sometimes we do put up with each other because we have to, but that's not the thought behind this. That's not the heart behind this at all. It's describing a willingness to bear with one another, with their peculiarities or failures or weaknesses or idiosyncrasies, without succumbing to selfishness, bitterness, or anger. And it's easy to see them in other people. It's not so easy to see them in ourselves. But we all have them. And so we mutually bear with one another. How do I do this? Well, I think one way we do this is we begin to comprehend and we ask God to help me get a grip on the love of God. If I can see the way he loves me, it's going to help me to love other people. When I see that this love is immeasurable, it's going to help me not put limitations on my love for other people. And we're going to say, Father, if you love me this great, certainly I can, I can love anybody you call me to. We walk lovingly. <laughs> I read this quote, and I don't like to fill my messages with quotes, but this one was too good to pass up. He says, no virtue is more frequently demanded in our intercourse with others than forbearance. We do not go far with any fellow traveler on the journey of life before we find there is a great occasion for its exercise. <laughs> I think what he means is we've got to do this regularly with each other. We're all going to demand it. We're all going to need to give it. So there's an idea here of mutual toleration, mutual, mutual toleration. Secondly, mutual support. The word also means to hold up, to prop, to sustain. So it's not just the idea I'm bearing with somebody. Now I'm bearing up under somebody and I'm helping them. As they're going through difficulties, I'm helping to sustain them. 
It's the idea of, hey, I have your back. I'm here for you when you're weak. Rather than responding in kind when someone's having a bad day and they may say something inappropriate or lash out to me, I lovingly put my arm around him and said, hey, man, I'm sorry. You're going through hard stuff. Can I pray with you? I love you. What can I do to help you? And when we respond that way, it diffuses the bomb. It's a soft answer that turns away wrath. And so we walk lovingly. There's a a last characteristic here, and I'll, I'll try to move through this quickly. This is the one I really wanted to focus on. And that is letter E, it's walk carefully, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I don't know how to, I don't really know, don't know how to outline this section here. I'm just going to look at the words individually as we work through this passage. Endeavoring, endeavoring is a powerful word. It's based on the idea of being zealous. It's the idea of making every effort, be zealous in what you're doing. And it's emphatic by position. It's first in the word order. If you were to look at this verse in Greek, endeavoring is the very first word in the sentence. It is in English as well. It conveys a sense of urgency. Make haste. Do it quickly. Don't let time pass. It also conveys the idea of a sense of effort. Do it diligently. It excludes the idea of passivity. What do I mean by that? I I can't just take a wait-and-see attitude because it's in the imperative mode. How many of you guys, when you're dealing with conflict, like to step back and say, well, maybe it'll just pass. (laughs) It'll all just work out. I don't like confrontation. I don't like dealing with these types of things. They're hard. They're not comfortable. And it's very easy to step back and say, you know what? It's just going to work itself out and everything will be okay. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we can jump in too early and we make it worse. I'd agree with that. But if it's cowardice that's keeping us from stepping in and intervening, then that's not good either. And the idea here is that I've got to take some effort. I can't afford to wait and just hope that it works itself out. There's a sense of urgency. I need to make haste to do it. We see also that it describes a mature response to differences. Acting as adults instead of his children. Do we expect children to have conflict and strife and contention? And to probably respond improperly to their reactions and and interactions in that way? We do, because they've got to be taught, they've got to be trained. But you know, I can see that in my own life sometimes. I'm very childish in my interactions when there's strife and contention. And this word here is dealing with the adult or the mature response. There's another word that could have been used that is the childish and the immature response. And Paul says, I want you to handle these conflicts like adults. Grow up a little bit and deal with it that way. Divisions within the body are often a sign of immaturity and childishness. And we expect this behavior out of children, and Paul says, don't let it be found in you. And when it is, when these things do come up, endeavor. Jump into it. Deal with it wisely, maturely, urgently, diligently, and actively under the the control of the Holy Spirit. So endeavor is a powerful word. See, the second word here, endeavoring to keep. Keep is a protective word. The idea here is to attend to something carefully, to watch over it, to be its custodian. Doesn't Matthew 5 have something to say about being a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. It's the idea of guarding or protecting or preserving. So what types of things do we guard and protect and preserve? Well, we want to guard and protect our children, right? If you have expensive jewelry, you're going to guard and take care of that. 
I think of Roger's gun safe. (laughs) He had a lot of guns in that safe, and he was guarding them and protecting them, locked up. Maybe we're going to guard our mutual fund. Maybe we're going to guard our honor or our reputation. We guard and protect those things that are valuable to us, things that we think are precious. And so it says, endeavoring to keep, what's the next phrase? The unity. Do you see where we're going here? Unity is a precious word. And we need to endeavor to keep it, to guard it, to protect it, to preserve it. Unity is a oneness of spirit. It's a moving in the same direction. It's a team mentality. And folks, it's something to be greatly valued and greatly cherished. We're to keep it and guard it and protect it. And we're to do this maturely and urgently and diligently and actively. Is unity the most important thing? I would say no to that. Because we don't have a unity at the expense of truth. Here it's talking about the unity of the spirit, right? There is a point where truth is more important than unity, and we have to divide. But within our congregations and within our church, uh, this body of Christ here, generally that's not the issue. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This idea of peace, I would say, is a prized word. It's it's a valuable word. How many of you value peace in your life and in your relationships? I do. And God does as well. Harmony conquered, the absence of strife, the absence of contention. And by the way, this type of peace comes at a price. It's the bond of peace. And it's interesting, that word is the same root word that Paul uses back in in verse 1, talking about himself being a prisoner. It's the bond of peace. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and so are you. Do prisoners have rights? Not a lot. (laughs) I mean, yes, there are some some human fundamental rights that they need to have, but they're in prison. They don't get to go out to the ball game. They don't get to go and do all these things. Their, their rights are limited because they are bound. Bonds bring an element of equality. Outside the prison, there's different hierarchies. Once you get in jail or in prison, you're kind of all the same. It doesn't matter if you have money or not have money. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're healthy or not healthy. You're all in the same playing field. I think that's part of the idea here. He says, realize that's the bond of peace. You guys are bound. It's also the word used for ligament, that which binds joints together. Perhaps we could say it this way. If love is the oil that provides lubrication in our relationships, peace is the ligament that holds them together. I'm not doing a good job of tying this all together, but maybe this statement will help. When I recognize my bondage to Jesus Christ, I will willingly allow myself to be bound together in harmony and unity with my fellow members of this body of Christ. I'm going to allow that to bind us close So we endeavor, we work hard, we're zealous to keep, to protect, to guard the unity that's so precious in our fellowship. And we do that in the bond of peace because that's our goal, that's what we want. It's quite a statement. This isn't an easy message to preach. I I work through this and the more I study this and thought through these, like I mentioned before, I see inadequacies in my life. I'm not lowly like I should be. I don't walk meekly like I should. There's times that I'm not as forbearing as I need to be. But God, help us to develop these characteristics in our lives so that we can model this worthy walk and demonstrate unity within our church and so this world can see that it's possible. Because they're sure struggling with it. 
how do we, how do, we do this practically? I mean, let me just give you a few thoughts. This isn't necessarily from the text, but just a few thoughts as we wrap this up. How can we put this into practice? Number one, James tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. What a great reminder. Are there times things need to be said? Yes, there are. Are there times we need to bite our tongues? Yes, there are. (laughs) And pray that God gives us the wisdom to tell the difference and the self-control to maintain it. Number two, recognize that we all have issues. (laughs) All of us do. All of us have differences. All of us are going to have bad days. All of us are going to have times where we say something we shouldn't or react in a way that we shouldn't. Don't be surprised when strife comes. It's a reality of life. Don't let it throw you. I would say next, look for the good in other people. Look for the good. In Philippians, Paul says, let each esteem others better than themselves. I'm not advancing this theology that every man is good in God's eyes. That's not what I'm saying. But look for the positive. It's easy to see the negative. Look for the positive. I would say next, be watchful for seeds of disunity. When we see it, when you see little things cropping up that might be causing a friction or a faction, be watchful and be ready to deal with it and work towards it. Look for it in your own life. If you start to see discontent creeping up within your own life, that's the time to deal with it on a personal level. But if there's relationships that you can see are struggling, go put your arm around that person and say, hey, let's endeavor to keep the unity and the bond of peace. Let me come alongside you and help you with this. And that goes to the next one, love unity and love each other enough to maintain it. Is our unity here in this church precious? I think it is. I think it's worth working hard to maintain it. And if there's a struggle with somebody, go to that person individually. Follow the the passage in Matthew 18. Don't let it build up to where all of a sudden now it's bigger and bigger and bigger. Deal with it while it's small. Talk it out humbly and meekly. Ask questions to better understand. And I would say next, seek and extend forgiveness regularly. (laughs) If somebody comes to you and say, you know, you said this thing, and you say, you know what, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. That's not what I intended to communicate. The words, I was wrong, will you forgive me, should not be foreign to our lips. Whether you're in church or whether you're in your families or in your job, whatever it might be, learn to forgive, extend it, and, and be willing to ask for it. And then finally, how about this thought? Let's, let's give grace to each other. Aren't you thankful that God's extended grace to you? I am. Man, the, more, the older that I get, the more I see God's grace in my life and his mercy and his long-suffering and his faithfulness. Let's be slow to judge and quick to give grace. I think as we do these things, God's going to help us build this unity, and we have it. I'm not preaching saying that we don't, but boy, we've got to work hard to maintain it endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because that's the first way that we demonstrate this worthy walk. And demonstrating this worthy walk helps us to walk worthy of all the blessings that God has given to us. It'll give God's blessing on our life. And it'll also give God's blessing on our church. Father, I thank you for this passage that we've looked at. So many thoughts, so many things and directions that we could go. I thank you, Father, that you have chosen to reconcile us unto you. Lord, what an incredible thought. In our sinful conditions, you have bought us back. And in our response to the gift of God and our confession of sin, you have reconciled us to Jesus Christ. 
Father, help us to be quick with one another to reconcile as well. I pray that you would continue to foster and promote unity within this church. I pray that you'd help us to walk with these characteristics in mind. Help us, Father, to be humble. Help us to be meek. Help us to be patient with each other. Help us to be forbearing. And Father, as we do that, help us to demonstrate this love one to another. And may that spring over into our relationships with those in the world. May they see our love for them. May they see the unity that we enjoy. And may that create a hunger in them for what we have. God, may we not take it for granted. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us and giving us the ability to love each other. Help us to do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.